Good morning, church. Hey, let's try that one more time just for my satisfaction. Good morning. Hey, we are so grateful that you guys are here. And if you're a first-time guest, I just want to uh, join with uh, what Archie reiterated earlier. Just say welcome. We're grateful that you're here. And uh, we look forward uh, to what God's going to teach us this morning. And um, uh, today, really, we're going to continue a series called Exiled in First Peter. And uh, if you are, are here today, I think it is imperative that we know why Christ died uh, on the cross. And I think for us, as if you grew up in the church, you have kind of an inclination or an idea of why. And of course, it was because Jesus loves you and he cares for you. And, and you know, we want to teach our children that, that God is all loving and that he loves everybody. And But the question is this, do you and I realize really with totality why it is that Christ died? Do you realize why it's imperative that you and I know that? And that's what this text today is going to show us. Now, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 18, but here's what I'm going to show, show you. Today is going to be probably one of the most difficult texts in all the New Testament, and by far, probably one of the top 10 most difficult texts in all of the Bible to uh, expound on. And so uh, I'm glad that you're here, but as you walk out of the door uh, today, you're going to have several questions. You're going to have to go to the Googler later today, and you're going to have to look up a few things. And that's going to be a good thing, because for many of us in this room, you may have read this text before. You may have at some sometimes skimmed over it, but you probably have never been taught it in any church that you've ever been a part of. Matter of fact, in the first service, I polled it uh, about middle way through the, through the service, and there were three hands, an entire crowd of about 150 adults that their hands raised based off of the text that they had read. And so you may have read it before, but most of us probably have never seen it taught. And so today I'm going to do the very best to try to teach it to you because it shows you why Christ died. And it shows you that why he died may be different than what you and I have heard all our lives in terms of who God is. And so I think it's first imperative that you and I understand that we have an enemy, okay? Now, real quickly, if you real, raise your hand, if you know that you've heard in the Bible that there is an enemy, okay? Raise your hand, okay? So that's, that's not new. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you know that the enemy is in the metaphysical realm? That means the spiritual realm. So I mean, you're, you're going to hear that term time and time again, the metaphysical, which is the spiritual realm. So you know that the enemy is in the spiritual realm. Awesome. Okay. Now, how many of you believe that the enemy is Satan? Raise your hand. Okay, now let me ask you a question. What if I were to tell you that you're wrong? The enemy that you have is God. The enemy that you and I have is God. And you're like, okay, hold on, here we go. This heretic here, no, 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 listen, here's why. It's because if I look at my life, I'm gonna speak of me, not for you. I'm not gonna imply anything onto you. I'm gonna speak just of me. I realize that I am a wicked individual, that really in my heart of hearts that I'm evil that I, I want to do the things that I want to do, that I'm evil, I'm vile, uh, I'm prone to do the things that I set my heart and my desire on. Really, isn't that society right now? Like, hey, do whatever feels right. Hey, do what makes you feel good. Hey, you are the king of your life. That is who I am at the very core of my heart. I am that person. And you're like, you're the pastor here? By God's grace. But I am a sinner, I am wretched, and I have pitted myself against a holy God. And the reason why is because he is holy, and just in case you didn't realize it, I am not. 
Matter of fact, then as I start looking at my sin patterns, I start looking at who I am apart from God, I am reminded of the scriptures as a whole. And I start reading things like this. And these are just things that most of us, we don't, we don't read and we're perplexed by them to some degree. Deuteronomy 4.27 said this, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Now what's interesting is, is that we have been taught that God is all loving, he's all merciful, but yet you and I would sing songs like this, that God is a consuming fire. Like we are uttering these words through song, and we have no idea what we were just singing. He is a consuming fire. Psalm 711 says this, that God every day is angry with the wicked. Listen to Psalm 5, verse 5, what it says about God, that God hates all evildoers. Psalm 11, verse 5, even goes a little stronger language than that. It's harsher. It says, the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Now, have you ever heard that God hates anybody? No, you're like, God loves everybody, right? He has the whole world in his hands, right? True? Like, that's what you heard. Like, then consider Ezekiel chapter 8. The prophet Ezekiel, he speaks in verse 18. He says, God said, I will act in a fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So in a sense, he goes, I I see these people. I see what they've done. And even though they cry out for mercy, God says, I'm not going to hear them. Ezekiel chapter 63, verse uh, three and four. Listen to this. It says, I have trodden the winepress alone, for I have trodden them in my anger. I trampled them in my fury. And he gives the, the metaphor that as if he was walking in to a, a place full of grapes, and he just started trampling on them just with his feet. And it says, I trampled them. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments and stained on my robes. And he's speaking of people in their sins. He goes, I have trampled on them, and their blood is thrown on my robes. Now, that's some metaphor right there, right? Some language that's strong. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. Now, is this perplexing? Is, is it one thing to think, okay, God is all loving, he is all merciful, but yet he is holy, and he is going to, in, in a sense, rule with vengeance. And is that really hard to understand? And I think if you're able to answer a few of these questions, maybe it's not. And so the first question you have to ask yourself is, am I really evil? Like, is my heart really vile? Is it really wicked? And here's what I want you to realize is that it is. You're like, no, 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 I'm not that bad, okay? And I get it, I get it. You're not near as bad as the person sitting on your right, okay? And you're not near as bad as the person sitting on your left, okay? You're better than the person in front of you. You're better than the person. And so when you start comparing yourself to the people in this room, you're like, I am not near the hypocrites that they are. And in a sense, we feel better about it. But if you look at who you should compare yourself to, one who is holy in every way, who's never sinned, who's perfect, and does not allow evil to inhabit his chamber, it means that we are wicked and we're vile and our hearts are hard and deceitful. Which also means that we've pitted ourselves against a holy God. So it means that he is holy and we are not. And there is a separation, a chasm of sorts, because of our sin patterns. And so every one of us in here, we would, we would believe the, the verses that we would read in, in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Like we believe that. We, we wouldn't any, even dare to say we haven't sinned. But in our sin, we have believed a lie all our life that even though I sin, I'm really not that bad. And the Bible says, yes, we are. And so we have a sin problem, a wickedness problem. So the second question you have to ask yourself as you enter this text 
is if I am really wicked and I really am evil and I really am vile and no one should really have ever considered marrying me because I'm a pretty messed up person, right? The second question you should ask is, does that have an effect on my relation with God? Does that keep me from knowing God? Am I separated from him? And the answer to that is yes. An emphatic yes. God has set himself in a place of holiness, and he does not allow anything wicked, evil, or vile to enter into his presence. And we are separated from God for an eternity because of what? His wrath and his judgment. Romans 1 verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God has a way of punishing evil. And ultimately, he is our adversary. Because of our sin and because of his holiness, we have set ourselves up against him. Now, I want to welcome you all to Stone Point Church today. We're grateful that you're here. <laughs> so the question is, is if I'm evil and I'm separated from God, then what does that mean? Is there punishment? And the scriptures show us clearly that, yes, there is punishment. There is punishment because of our evil and our corruption. Matter of fact, I just showed you that God would, in a sense, allow you to live an unrighteous life in Romans 1.18, but I want to just read or, or listen to verse 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 1. Therefore, because of our unrighteousness, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among the, themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And it says, Amen. Now, in Romans 1, you're going to see that God would hand people over for a variety of things. In their evil, he would hand them over to idolatry. They would worship the, the created beings rather than the one who created all things. They would begin to involve themselves in what you would see throughout the scriptures, strange flesh. Things that don't honor God because they're not natural in mankind. They don't, they don't bring about reproduction and the blessing of God and humanity across the earth. And so it's a strange, it's a strange flesh. And, and God said, I will give you over to that. I'll give you over to your futile thinking. I'll give you over to your depraved mind. And you just see this continual pattern throughout all of scripture that God says, if you want sin, then I'll give you over to it. Now, I'll tell you, I think that's the most trepidatious and probably the most scary thing for all of us in this room. That I could, in my heart, Sin so much against God that God would at some point say, because of your evil, vile heart, I will give you over to that at some point, and I'll let you have it. Now, I'll tell you, the one most dumbfounding and confusing things to me from anyone who doesn't believe in God says this, I can't believe in God because how can a loving God ban me to hell? Now, let me ask you a question. Isn't that perplexing? Why? Is God banning you to hell? Or is he just allowing you to choose something that you've loved all your life for an eternity? Think about that for just a second. See, we like the idea of spending an eternity with God because he loves us, yet we want to live a lifetime without him. And so what God is simply saying is, if you want a lifetime without me, I'll give you over to the depravity of your thinking, your futile mind. I'll give you over to the lust of your flesh, the strange things that you do, and you can have it. And not only can you have it, you'll have separation from me and a relation with God on earth that you'll have for all of eternity to your heart's to content for all of eternity and it's a place called hell. And we are dumbfounded because we go, God, how, how would you do that? And here's why. Listen, it's because there is punishment because of our evil. 
And so we've answered three questions. Number one, are we evil? Yes, we are. Number two, is God holy? Yes, he is. Do we deserve punishment and condemnation because of our evil? Yes, we do. Are we going to get that? Yes, we are. So here's the last question. And then we'll dive into this text that's going to take us several places throughout our Bible. It's going to leave you thinking a ton today. Here it is. Is there hope? And the answer is yes, there is hope. And so why is there hope? Because of verse 18. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, there is hope, okay? And so there's the good news. Everybody can take a deep breath. You can settle in. You can go, I am glad I came this morning, okay? Because this is simply here as a text to remind you about the human condition, a holy God, and why we need him. Understand? And I'll tell you, it would be so much easier on me as a pastor here in this community and a pastor in this church to encourage you today, to tell you how much God loves you, and to send you out with a great feel-good message. That would be awesome. But I can't do that as a minister of the gospel. I can't. Why? Because the Bible is not there to make you feel good. It's not. The Bible is not meant to be open on a Monday morning to give you some incredible thought as you drink your coffee and you get ready to go to a workplace you hate so that you can make it through your day inspired by one verse. The Bible is there to teach you about your sin and about God's holiness and about our need for him, okay? Like that's the Bible. That's why we should read it. That's why I think most of us in this room are gonna read this today and most of what we read you've never read before although you've read it multiple times. Make sense? Okay, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once, verse 18. What he does is, is Peter, he gives you chapter three and he goes, look, Christ has made us righteous on his behalf. How does he do that? He does it in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once. That word once right there is an incredible word that you'll see about 14 times in all of your Bible, and it's the word of the Greek called hapox. It's, it's a phenomenon, really, and here's why. The hapox is there is because it's a, it's a one-time transaction, but it, it continues to manifest itself without the need for repetition. So the idea is that Christ died once and for all. So like he suffered once. So he hung on the, the, the hill of Golgotha and he did it one time. And the reason why that Peter writes this is because we need to know why it is that he suffered. He suffered, look, for our sins. But it's also the, the reason that he gives that word, he suffered once and for all, he shows you that you and I can't continually come to Jesus asking him for salvation. Like it's not something that happens time and time and time and time again. Because if you could lose your salvation somehow hypothetically, then it means that Christ would have to die continually over and over and over and over again. Matter of fact, if you realize that in your Bible, there used to be something that happened year and year and year and year after, and that was the Day of Atonement. That was the sacrificial system in which millions of lambs and goats were slaughtered throughout the history of the Jewish nation. Millions. And every year, there would be blood that was sprinkled everywhere. And I'll tell you that a Jew knew that they were sinners and that they were evil and they were vile. And here's why. Because every year, they saw millions of lambs slaughtered time and time again. Hundreds of lambs every year throughout the generation of their, their time. Do you get that? And so if you knew that you had to come to a temple and there had to be a high priest that goes into one chamber, that's 15 by 15, they were the only one that could enter in, and they had to sacrifice the blood of bulls to cleanse themselves before they could go in and uh, sacrifice the blood of lambs, then get this, you would know that you're a sinner and needed forgiveness, right? 
Unfortunately, we don't have that happening. And so what we believe is that we live in a country blessed by God in America. God loves all Americans, right? I mean, matter of fact, I mean, he is a, he's created a plan of happiness and equality and peace and the pursuit of all of those things. We don't see sacrifice happening. But what Peter goes, there was one sacrifice and it happened once, but it's without repetition, continually applied to those who believe in it. And that is for sins. That's what he says it's for. It's for sins. Whose sins? My sins. Mine. I'm just going to go and say that I might be the most wicked man in this room. And so he applied his life for my sins once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. So here it is. It's a transfer that takes place. The righteous one being Jesus for the unrighteous ones. Who are, uh, who's the unrighteous ones? Us, okay? So that's clear. Now, like, again, if you're comparing your neighbor, it's, it's not the case, right? I mean, you're, you're probably the righteous one. But if you're comparing yourself to God, the one who's never sinned, you and I are always loose. And that's who we have to compare ourselves to. So he was perfect, and we are enemies of God in our sin. Why did he die? He suffered on the cross one time for our sins so that we would what? Allow our righteousness of the righteousness of God to be placed on us, and he would take the righteousness of God from us. That is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That he might bring us to God. Do you see that? Underline that in your Bible. That he might bring us to God. And so we know that it's, a, a, according to Hebrews 9, it's appointed for man once to die. Like every person in this room is going to die. We also know that upon death, there is judgment that will take place. And we know that that judgment means that we're going to come face to face with a holy God who's never sinned, and he's going to judge us based off of what? Our sin. And we're going to either get the judgment of God and we're separated from him, or we're going to get the grace of God, not because of our life, because of our hope or because of anything we've done, but because of who his son is. You got that? You go, yeah, that's the gospel message, okay? Pretty pretty plain. Now look at verse 18. Uh, he brought, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now this is where it gets really good. You ready? Better get a pen and paper out. If you don't have it, then you'll ask lots of questions. You'll get to rewatch this video multiple times this week. Verse 18, the latter part, he does this, he brings us to God by being put to death in the flesh. And so Christ, when he's hanging on the skull of Golgotha, the cross, the crucifix, he's hanging wide, right? And he dies a physical death, but before he does, he commits his spirit to the Lord, right? I mean, it's very clear in the gospel message. Matter of fact, this last Easter, when we did the Easter experience, we highlighted that on our Good Friday evening. And so we, we showed that the Spirit of God, and that word, Spirit, should be, under, uh, uh, should be a small s, and it's the word pneuma, which literally just means the Spirit of God. So the Spirit that inhabits Christ as he dies a physical death, then departs from him, and when he says, I commit my spirit to the Lord, and the question is, where does it go? And so we go, well, naturally it went to heaven. It went right to what the right hand of the Father. Like, that's what you think. But look what it says happens. As he's being made alive in the spirit in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits, where? In prison. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever read this text and you're like, I know exactly where this is going. Raise your hand. Okay, there you go. My wife back there. I've been coaching her for years. 
So it says right there, okay, in which he went, meaning Christ, and he didn't, he didn't go right to the right hand of the Father. He went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this isn't something that I made up for some awesome teaching this morning. This is something that's in your Bible and has been there for centuries. This isn't some malfunction in the text. This isn't some add-in. This is something that's happened, and most of us as Christians have never read about it. But here's what I want you to see. It's not just here. It's continual through your Bible. You'll see it time and time again. Matter of fact, it's a New Testament theme that most of us as Christians have never read or really paid any attention to. But if you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, I'm going to read it. I'm going to put it up on the screen so you can go back to it. If you don't have your Bible, just make you a little note and you can go back. I'm just going to read it. I want you to see some consistent themes happening here, okay? Because this is going to be really important. The question is, in verse 19, if he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, who are the spirits? Is this like human spirits? Is this, is this like, you know, heaven? Did he go to hell? Where did he go? And so here's what you need to know. If you see the word spirits with plurality, it's never referring in the scripture to a human soul or a spirit. So we know that Paul says to be absent of the body is to be present for the, with the Lord. And we know that we have a soul in which when our mortal physical body dies, our soul goes and it's either going to go to a place of evil and corruption because of our sin and because we're an enemy of God, or it's going to go to a place inhabited by God in a place called paradise or a place called heaven, what you would know as heaven, in which God dwells now. And it either goes to one of those two places. So the question is, is this talking about spirits or a soul? And the answer is no. It seems to be speaking of something in the metaphysical realm, something that really, for most part, freaks most of us out in this room. They were like, What? But look, watch it, and I'll show you how incredible this is. And then I'm going to show you why you shouldn't get too caught up in that, and you should see what it is that Peter's really trying to say. So look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 10. He thought it was so important that he mentioned it in his second epistle, which is a letter, by the way, okay? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, so we know that we have what you call Satan, Lucifer, the bright and morning star, the accuser, the diabolos, the one who, what, is our adversary or enemy, we know we got him from the fall. We know that he wanted to be like God. He tried to usurp God's authority, and God says, no, I'm going to banish you from my presence, okay? Now, is that new to anybody in here, okay? If it's not new to you, then you see that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them to hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now, you need to underline that word right there uh, or that phrase, gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he shows you judgment there in the times of Noah. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, he shows you Sodom and Gomorrah. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So what he's saying is, he goes, there are some that I will punish. And he goes, I'm going to punish continually anything that is of strange flesh. 
And you look back and you go, well, who all has he punished throughout history? He's, he has punished nations. He has punished people groups. But he goes, I haven't just done that in the physical realm, mortal man, because I have punished the angelic realm because of what? Their sin and because of their desire for strange flesh, things that are not natural or wholesome or good. Understand? Why are y'all looking at me like that? Look at Jude, okay? In Jude, you're going to see another example. It's almost going to take an add-on to what, what this guy Peter is saying. But in Jude, which is only one chapter, verses 5 through 7, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jesus made a provision for them to come through the Dead Sea, the waters split, and then it crashed down on who? The evil and vile Egyptians. He goes, just as I made a provision for them, I make provisions. Then look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling place, you can underline all of verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, left their proper dwelling place, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day the judgment of the great day. So you see that? Again, it it showed you something that happened in the physical realm, and now it's showing you something that happened in the metaphysical realm. And it has to do with something like a legion of angels who usurped God's authority, right? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality in pursuit of an unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here it is. He's giving you examples here of societies, of people, both mortal man and also in a metaphysical, spiritual realm of people who tried to do their own thing, usurping the authority of God, and God said, no, you cannot do that without punishment and without judgment. And he goes, I've judged the the physical realm and I will judge the spiritual realm. I'll judge it all. It's the idea of Philippians 2 that you and I, when we hear it, we go, praise God, praise God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before heaven and earth. Now look, Paul doesn't write that to the church of Philippi just for our sake of saying, oh yeah, everything under heaven and earth that God has created will glorify him. No, he is saying everything, both physical, both metaphysical, all created beings, angelic beings, mortal beings, all rocks, all nations, all tongues, everything will ultimately submit to the power of who? Jesus. And so do you see the power that that this man, Jesus, the God-man, has? He has the power to judge all things that set themselves against him. You understand? Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 8, because... We've got to ask ourselves the question, well, who in the world are these spirits then that, that you see Peter talking about? Anybody think I'm crazy yet? I want you to see it. Now, here's what's so interesting about all of this is that in Genesis chapter 6, it means that it's something you've read before. Why? Because every single one of us, the first of the year, starts a new Bible reading plan, and we typically get to about Genesis 20, <laughs> and we fade out. So you've read it time and time and time again. But the question is, is have you ever really understood it? Have you ever seen it? Have you ever taken the time to study the text besides just read it so that you could check off a box and say, I read the Bible, I feel better today. I'm more spiritual today than I was yesterday. That's not the goal of Christianity. It's not to feel spiritual. 
It's to get to know who God is and about what he does with evil man, about what he does with angelic beings who usurp usurp his authority, who try to control things. So here it is. In Genesis chapter 6, you'll understand the reason of the fall, and I'm even going to show you one line in here that have been misquoted by pastors and teachers all across the world multiple times. Verse 1 of Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, real quickly, in verse 1, you need to underline and ask the question, who is man? When man began to multiply on the face of the land, who is that? That is mortal man. What was the command given to Adam and Eve? Multiply and fill the earth and what? Subdue it. Like that was the command of God to them. This is your land. This is the earth created for you. Multiply and fill the earth. That would please God. And so here it is. They do that. That's verse 1. Mankind, mortal man, flesh and bone, they are multiplying and fill the earth. Then in verse 2, it says, Now the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And the question you have to ask yourself, and who in the world are the sons of God? So if sons of God are mortal man, then why would you add that line in when you have mortal man right there in verse 1? Matter of fact, if they are mortal men, then why would Peter go to expound on it and say that there were a group of angels who left their proper dwelling place to somehow try to usurp the authority of God? Why would Jude say that God took some angels who left their proper dwelling place and he's chained them until the day of judgment? Why would you have that in your Bible? And here's why. Because of Genesis 6, something that happened in the days of Noah. And here's what it is. You had the metaphysical realm, they desire to enter into the mortal realm. Now, you go, well, that's crazy. That's, that's ludicrous. Who would believe such a thing? Well, let me ask you a question. How often does mortal man try to get into the spiritual realm? You pay money for it. It happens. The physical realm is not by itself. We have a spiritual realm. And you can enter into it. How do we enter into it? You enter into it through salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. You enter into a spiritual realm. We love the notion of that. What we don't like, the idea is, is you mean that there's an angelic realm that we don't see and understand? Yeah, Ephesians 6 speaks very clearly of it. But the question is, is why did this happen? Like, why does it seem that there was an angelic realm, some angelic beings that left their proper dwelling place to somehow pursue attractive women that were mortal? And I have a theory, and I think you see it here. Look at it right here. It says, as they, t- as they saw the daughters of men were attracted, they took them as their wives as they chose. So they seemed to enter into the mortal sphere. And they began to what? Intermarry, it seems to be, with more. So you have, you have this uh, metaphysical, spiritual realm somehow trying to intermarry with the physical realm. Now, the question is, how do they do that? I don't really know other than maybe that you would attest to it as some sort of um, demonic possession, that maybe they inhabited a, a mortal man somehow. We don't know exactly, but here's what we do know. We know that there was something that, that came out of it. Look at verse 4, or look at verse 3. The Lord God said, Then let my, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. And so here it is. He goes, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Now, what does he mean? So God sees that you have this angelic realm leaving for mortal, attractive women, and they want to conceive with them. And God says, no, no, no. And the question is, why? 
It's the same reason that he said no to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same reason that he said no to, uh, uh, to this activity, and here's why. It's the same reason that he gave, in Romans 1, them over to their depraved thinking, the futile uh, acts, to their own depravity in terms of uh, physical relationships, man with man, woman with woman, and here's why. Because it's, it's not natural. It's not natural. It's of strange flesh. And he goes, and I'm going to punish that. I'm going to punish. And so here it is. He goes, that's not going to happen. And he says, my, my spirit is not going to abide with man forever. So here's what, it, here's what it must have been. This is a theory. I can't prove it, but I think this is probably what I, I could have seen happen. In Genesis chapter 3, you see the fall of man, and you see the serpent say, take and eat this, and you'll be like God. You'll have the knowledge of God, you'll have the eyes of God, you'll have everything to yourself, the pride of life, right? Now, how did that work out for them? Not very good. But could you imagine that a few hundred years later, the angelic rim's going, how do we, how do we find a way to reverse this curse? What if we were able to enter into the physical realm and what if we as spirits were able to indwell these people and somehow they were able to live forever? Wouldn't that be awesome? And so in some way, they had something that what humans knew they couldn't possess because every human in here knows what, we're gonna die. Like that's a fact of life. But if the spiritual realm offered you a chance to live forever, would you take it? And it seems to be that they came to attractive women and said, we're going to give you a chance to live forever. What if we became one? And God says, no, we're not going to distort things of unnatural flesh. I'm not going to allow my spirit to abide in man forever. And here's what he means by that. And then he gives you, what, 120 years. And for us in here, we go, oh, okay, that must mean that man's never going to live 120 years or more. And that is not the teaching. That's not right, okay? Okay. What it shows is, is that within 120 years of this proclamation, God says, I am going to punish all, and I'm going to start over. I am grieved that I ever made man. I am grieved that all of this has happened. And in 120 years from the proclamation right here, you have what? A great flood. You got that? And so you can take it to the bank. Then look at verse 5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of the heart was evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 4, you see this? The reason why he wipes out everything and obliterates it is because of verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were men of old, men of renown. And there have been archaeological discoveries that people can't, they can't understand. And they go, okay, how in the world does this guy, how, whatever this was, this beast, how did he have such a large skull? How, what was this? And it's Nephilim. And you're like, What? Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you in here, you're like, this is the first time I've ever heard this in any church I've ever been a part of? Go ahead, raise your hand. I'm sorry. I am sorry. It is a shame that we are not teaching the whole counsel of God's word, even though it scares the living. What? I don't think I can say it. Out of us. Why? Because we don't teach this stuff. But here's the point. The point is, is that God says, no, I am not going to allow the, the metaphysical into the physical. I am not going to allow some corrupt and, 
angelic realm, some demonic forces to enter in the presence of humanity and somehow usurp my authority. No, it's not going to happen. He goes, I'm not going to allow people to do wicked, vile things. I'll give them over to it. I'm going to judge them for it. I am holy. They are not. They will be punished. And he has made a consistent theme throughout all of your Bible to punish, get this, the metaphysical and the physical. Why? Because God is God. He is holy. He is just. He is perfect. He does not allow sin to inhabit the courts of his phrases. He is God. He is not man upstairs. He's not the guy that somehow you, you get into favor with and, oh, man, me and God are good. You, me and man upstairs have worked it out. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. And for you even to ever say me and the man upstairs are good clearly understands that you don't know and fear the Lord because he is not a man. He is God outside of space and time. He entered into space and time through his son. He created all the world, all the natural realm that you and I know, everything physical, which is why the metaphysical scares us. But he created all time and space. He's outside of time and space. And the question is, is why did he do it? Because he desires to have a relationship with all of creation physical, metaphysical, but he also says, though I desire to have a relation with them, I will judge anything that is not right. Now that is the gospel at the central core, but here's why the resurrection occurred. You ready for it? Keep going, okay? Look at this in verse 20, okay? Why did he go and visit the spirits in prison? This is the biggest key. The biggest key to the day is not so that you now know that there were Nephilim, that there was spirits who somehow intermingled with the physical realm, okay? That's not, like, that's cool. It's good to hear, but that's not the, the whole theme of today. Here's the whole theme of today. Here it is. The reason he went to the spirits of, in prison after the death and the resurrection is because they formally did not obey. And when God's patience waited in the days to know while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So God waited for 120 years. He relented in his anger against all that had happened on the earth for 120 years until this boat was made. He is patient. He is patient. But he says, I will not relent in my judgment. I will bring it with a fury. And he did. Now, the reason that you have a rainbow is not because of the wickedness of men alone. It is because of a metaphysical and physical rim that matched. So every time you see a rainbow, you need to know that, that you see those rainbows as a hope to you of who God is, that he's a man of his word. But he's not just a man of his word against sin of man. He is a man of his word saying that no longer ever will the metaphysical ever enter into the physical realm like it did in the days of Noah and the days of old. Got me? So that's a no, no, new reason to see a rainbow. Now what's incredible too, you can call it ironic if you'd like, a rainbow as a representation of God punishing strange flesh. Let's put that together. Things that are not natural, that don't honor God. He goes, I, I, can't, I can't look on that and be pleased. That's not a condemnation because I, I just told you earlier that I'm probably the most wicked and vile man here. Understand? It's just a reality that our sins separate us from a holy God. It did back in Noah's day, but he goes, even in Noah's day, I saw eight that I saw fit to raise up above the water. And he goes, and I want to do that. And then in verse 21, it says, baptisms, which correspond to this, now saves you. 
wow, all this in one text. Baptism now saves you. And the question is, what does that mean? Well, the word right there in the Greek is baptismo, which literally means immersed. And, and the question is, is it, is it a physical proponent of water that saves you? And, and some of our friends would say, yes, if Salvation means that you have to have baptism well. Baptism is an essential part of salvation. But I don't think that's what Peter means. Matter of fact, look how he, look how he words this. Like he goes, number one, baptism, baptisma, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body. So he's saying it's not about a physical baptism. It's not about going under the water so that your sins are washed away. It's not about removal of dirt from the body. The reason that you and I are baptized into Christ, as Romans 6, 3, and 4 would say, that you're baptized into Christ, into his death, that you were buried with him into baptism, into his death. The reason that we're baptized into Christ is not through physical water, but it's through a spiritual act. Look at it. But it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Verse 21. It is us saying, God, I recognize who I am. I am a sinner in need of a, what? A holy God. And God says, I I will send to you someone who would stand in the gap for your place. And through not just your belief and your faith, but ultimately through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it can be made possible that you and I could what? Have a relationship with a holy God. Do you get this? Now, let me show you the cool part. This will wrap it all up. And are you ready for this? Even though you read this text and you're like, oh my gosh, the metaphysical, the physical, I don't even know what all this means. Here's what you need to hear. This is what you need to know. This is the point of Peter's message. This is it. Listen, what Jesus did, is instead of going right to the Father and sitting at his right hand upon his death and before his resurrection, he goes down and it appears to an angelic presence that has been chained, according to Jude, until the end of time. And the reason why is because upon his death on that cross, they must have been celebrating, right? I mean, think about it. They tried to get God in the garden. It didn't work. They tried to get God by capturing his people. It didn't work. He freed them through water. They went, they tried to get to God through his people. Maybe if the, 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 the physical and the metaphysical, maybe if they mix, maybe we'll give humanity something. Maybe we'll get God that way. God says, no, it doesn't work. And then they think, we don't have God in this way. We didn't get him in creation. We didn't get him by capturing his people. We didn't get through enslaving them to sin. We didn't get him through the, metaph- the metaphysical and the physical realm. Maybe we'll get him if we get him killed. Can you imagine Jesus hanging on the cross and the celebration that must have been taking place throughout all the demonic realm? We got him. We got him. And then Jesus is resurrected and he goes, hey, just wanted to say hello to you guys. I'm going to go and sit at the right hand of the Father and at the very end of time, I'm going to judge you with finality, but I just didn't want you to get too excited down here. Because this miserable place that you've created is going to be more miserable. Because I am holy and I am powerful. And you should declare to all the world, all creatures, below and above, all immortal and immortal, that I am the name above all names, that I am worthy of singing to, 
Because there is not a metaphysical rim or a physical rim that will usurp my authority because I am God and I am worthy of praise. And I'll tell you that, yes, in our sin, we are an enemy to God. But because of Jesus, the scriptures tell us that we no longer have to have him as an adversary, that we don't have to meet him as a lion who comes and mows us down with fury, but that we can meet him as a gentle lamb who desires to be our friend. And so, no, parents, you're not wrong when you pray with your kids and you say, God wants to be your friend. Yes, that's true. But when you tell them that God loves them, you also need to give them hope. And the hope is not in themselves or them going to church or somehow singing a few songs about Jesus. The hope is, is that Jesus died for your sin problem. And the way that you smacked your sister earlier, man, it didn't please God. It didn't honor him. The way you spoke and disrespected me, it, it didn't honor me as your parent. It didn't honor God. We have a sin problem though, and I do too. And I confess that to my wife and our kids, and I confess to you, I have a sin problem. But because of my hope in Jesus Christ, because of the victory that was proclaimed on the cross, because his spirit lives in me, I know that I have a new life in Christ. And I will tell you today, there is nothing good. As Romans 7, 18, Paul says, there's nothing good that lives in me apart from Christ. And that is true for me. And anyone who would declare those words, I am a sinner, I have an enemy of God, but I want to be a friend of God. God, would you change my heart? Would you help me to live and desire to please you? Can have salvation and ultimately celebrate baptism. Not the washing of water by some physical means, but the washing of water, Ezekiel 36, that he would sprinkle you clean, give you a heart of flesh and remove that old heart of stone. Amen? So there's a lot to research, a lot to Google today. If you have any questions, hey, feel free to call me up, set up an appointment. I would love to have a theological conversation, not so that we waste our time, but so I teach you a little bit more about God's word, not so we debate and wonder. The bottom line is this, we just need to know the Bible and we need to be able to teach it to our friends, even the things that we really don't like to teach or quite frankly, we don't really understand. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We ask, God, that you would take this time, that you would use it for your glory. God, help us to see the reality of our sin problem. God, help us to see that we are wicked and evil and vile, that apart from you, Lord, we deserve death and condemnation because you are going to punish things that do not represent you. God, we know we don't represent you on our own, but we thank you for your son who does. And so, Lord, help us, God, teach us, grow us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.